and welcome to Your Killer Life, where together we tackle the reality of surviving a killer diagnosis like cancer, and I help guide you through creating your killer life. I am your host, Tammy Grable Woodford, and in this podcast, we aren't leaving anything out as my guests and I share deeply personal insights and experiences as we talk about trauma, loss, treatment options, caregiving, side effects, money. Hey, we open it all up. In fact, we are even going into the forbidden zone to talk about sex, relationships, and mental health. Remember, the conversations you hear on the show are based on unique experiences and varying diagnoses, and we all had our own medical teams. We are not giving medical advice. So if you hear something inspiring, please talk with your providers. All right. Are you ready? I know I am. So let's get busy and start building your killer life. Hello and welcome to Your Killer Life, a podcast where we talk all things breast cancer. I'm your host, Tammy Grable-Woodford, and today we are talking with Dorothy Perez. Dorothy, I probably said your last name wrong, so you're going to have to correct me. You are a 42-year-old, three-time cancer survivor, an author, a speaker, and you have started a nonprofit, the Atrium Foundation, to help cancer survivors financially, which is a huge challenge for anyone who has been through this. But goodness, I know that there's so much more that you can tell us about you. So take a moment, please, to introduce yourself. Yeah, thanks so much, Tammy. Uh, really appreciate being here. And the last name was perfect. Um, so yeah, um, I'm a three-time cancer survivor. I actually have uh, the BRCA gene. I was diagnosed with breast cancer when I was 26. And that's how I uh, found that I had the gene. And then I was diagnosed when I was 36 and 38 with ovarian cancer. And yeah, um, I wrote uh, my first book, only book that I've written, uh, 26 and Fucked. It's about my cancer story at 26 and all of the, you know, crazy, messy, shitty things that happen from getting a diagnosis. Um, any cancer diagnosis really, I think, has its its toll, you know, on, on people, um, their families, their lives, your decisions. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's what, um, that's what the book is kind of about. I know we'll talk about uh, a little bit more of that soon. And the Atrium foundation is, uh, my, my passion. Uh, I think it's something that I've always really wanted to do in my heart. I have the opportunity to be able to do it. And, um, like you said, um, being able to move through cancer and move through that journey of survivorship um, is hard, but it's double hard. It's triple hard. It's just crazy hard um, when our insurance doesn't do everything for us. Right. Uh, when people may be out of jobs, you may be living paycheck to paycheck, you have a family, you have life responsibilities. And, um, that's what we aim to do is to be able to help alleviate some of that stress, alleviate some of that uncertainty. So that way people can focus on, on healing in their journey with their families. That is so significant. And I'm looking forward to diving in and talking a little bit more about the Atrium Foundation because you're right. You know, I think a lot of times people unfortunately believe that breast cancer is an older woman's 
disease or cancer, which is absolutely not true. I I was still, I was 43 when I was diagnosed. So I was older than, than you are in this moment, but I have spoken with so many thrivers who were diagnosed and, and are in their twenties. And it's really kind of amazing. So, and yeah, I, you work through it. You, you know, the, the bill, it is not one of the affordable diseases. <laughs> no, it's not. It's insane. Quite frankly, yeah. it's insane. I think to, to kind of touch on it on a couple things, you're right. Breast cancer. When I was 26, it was in 2005. And I feel like the one thing that I heard the most all the time was you're so young, you're so young, you know, you're so young. And I, I even had doctors and, and my surgeon that I worked with just kind of pushed me aside because I was young and she thought that it wasn't anything because I was too young. And, and it turns out, you know, if, if I hadn't pushed, if I hadn't really said, you know what, I, I just want this lump out. I don't, if it is something or isn't something, it bothers me. I don't want it. I, I can't imagine what the situation could have turned out, you know, letting it go. You know, in 2005, social media is not what it is today, right? I don't, I don't think I was even on, I was barely on Facebook um, and I was barely, you know, smartphones and doing all that stuff wasn't, wasn't really around. And so finding a network of young survivors was hard. And, and anybody that I found that was young was 10 years older than I was. So it was hard to find people to relate. And it's sad now with social media, I can see more stories, which is great. And, and there is more awareness, but it's sad because I'm still seeing young ladies say the same thing that they are still being pushed aside because of their age. And that, I don't know, something has to happen for that to change. <laughs> it is a really interesting thing because I, at the age of 43, was told that I was young and healthy. And so I also, at the age of 43, had to advocate for the mammogram because I knew that the changes in my breast were continuously changing. They were not normal. And I had a provider ask me if I wasn't sure that my nipple had always been inverted. Like I wouldn't know that. <laughs> for, yeah. Pretty sure. I've had them for 43 years. Uh, familiar. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I knew I had changes, but I still at the age of 43 was told, well, you're young and you're healthy and it's probably not anything. And I had that moment of pause where I was like, well, I can listen to what I want to hear, which is I'm probably fine, or I can listen to what my body and my instincts are telling me that I know, which is that I am not, and so pushed for that mammo. So I'm not quite sure what age it is that when we say, no, seriously, something's not right, <laughs> we don't get that pushback because it is it is very interesting. And to see so many women who are in their 20s and in their 30s that have had this diagnosis is amazing to me. Yeah. I did not have the BRCA gene, at least that I know, believe it or not, they did not do the genetic testing and I haven't gone back to do it. I don't have a breast cancer that runs in the family. Tell me a little bit about, so you, you did advocate for yourself. You clearly had, did you have a lumpectomy? Did you have a mastectomy? Was it after you had the tissue sent to pathology that you found out that it was BRCA? What was, how did that work out? Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, that's an interesting, it's an interesting question. And I think the one thing that be, before I dive into that, I want to say that you, you have totally 
uh, you know, to use the cliche term, like hit the nail on the head with women advocating for themselves. We know our bodies, right? We, we grow up with them. I mean, we see them develop and we see the changes that they go through. And I think that is first and foremost, it, if anybody could take anything away is advocate for yourself, know yourself, don't be shy. If someone's not listening, go find another doctor, you know, because it shouldn't be that way. And people shouldn't have to put up such a a fight or even have those questions and make you feel embarrassed for, for even being there, you know? So nail on the head. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, but yeah, to, to answer your question on the, on the BRCA gene and, and how I found it, um, I, I had a, a lump show up on the outer kind of right edge of my breast. So it wasn't in the middle. It wasn't around my nipple. It was just, you know, on the outer right side, you wear underwire bras, you start feeling those things, you know, and I, I started feeling the discomfort and I made an appointment with my um, primary care physician who happened to be out of town. And so they scheduled me with another physician that I had never met before. So I was already nervous and kind of like, should I go? Should I not go? I don't know this person, but I went and she listened to me, listened to what I was saying, listened to um, how I was feeling my story. Um, And she did a, um, what do you, what is the word I'm looking for? Um, exam. Yeah. Breast exam. And she's like, yep, something's, something's out of place. Something's not right. So she referred me to a breast breast specialist. And, um, when I went to this specialist, it was, it was a very interesting, complex situation because, um, like I was saying, I, I went to her and her first thought was like, it's just a cyst, you know, you're too young, you know, young women have dense breast tissue. It's just, don't worry about it. And I was like, well, I I would like to see, I would like to know, you know? And then I think the first thing that we did was a mammogram and an ultrasound and it didn't really show anything, uh, conclusive. So again, she was like, well, no big deal, you know, nothing showing up you're young. And so I think I kind of went on for a little while, maybe a couple of weeks or something. And it just kind of kept bothering me. So I made another appointment with her, went back, and that's when she gave me the option for a fine needle aspiration. So we did do that, which is also like a crazy procedure, you know, sitting there with your arm up in the air and someone taking a needle and like poking, stabbing you. Um, That was not pleasant, but um, she did that. And then those results, I think, also came back as like non-conclusive. It wasn't, it wasn't anything alarming, uh, I don't think. And I later learned with fine needle aspirations that they can give inconclusive results because if there is any part of the cell, you know, or the growth that has died and the needle gets impacted with those dead cells, then it's going to give an inconclusive result. But she did say, like, if it really was bothering me, that I could go in and have it removed. And so I opted for that. And so we did the the lumpectomy. And I went in to meet with her and get the results. And it was supposed to just be this normal, everyday kind of follow-up. And she was supposed to just tell me that it was nothing and I was being crazy. You know, the first thing that she said when she sat down was, it's cancer. And I, I couldn't tell from the way that it looked on the outside, but as soon as they 
cut into it to do the biopsy, they knew. Then the whirlwind started from there. But how I came to doing the BRCA testing was when I went to go see my oncologist. Um, Because I was young, and I also don't know my medical history, I was adopted um, when I was an infant. I was six weeks old. And so I don't have any of that information. That's when my oncologist presented me with, I would like for you to do this because I think it would help us understand your long-term plan, you know, things that we have to be aware of, but, um, but also to, to know, you know, we, we just didn't have the information. So I opted to do the BRCA testing at the time. And that's how I came to find um, that I had, unfortunately, the gene for both breast and ovarian cancer. Gotcha. So you'd had a lumpectomy. Did you, in speaking then with your medical oncologist, were your margins clear and and you were good with breast cancer or were there more treatments? Did they recommend chemotherapy or radiation or hormone suppressing therapies, mastectomy or kind of what happened after that? Yeah. Yeah. So my surgeon, when she had told me that I was diagnosed, she also kind of dropped this, you know, really heavy, crazy brick filled boot on me and was like, you have to remove everything. And I, I was like, why, like, why do I need it? Am I dying? Like what's happening? You know? Um, and it was interesting because when she was pushing off my age for not wanting to, to move forward with a, um, removing the, the lump and thinking that it was nothing, all of a sudden my age became a factor. And she said, well, because you're so young and because, you know, you're at the age you are and your hormone fluctuations and et cetera, et cetera, I'm at a higher, I guess, risk for the cancer spreading and being more aggressive. So she was like, we got to have, we have to remove everything. And I was like, what is everything? And she literally told me a full, you know, bilateral mastectomy and a full hysterectomy. And I, I, you know, I was flabbergasted, right? I, I didn't know how to take that, but I think fortunately we were able to kind of hold the brakes on things. I, I asked her what my other options were, why I needed to do that. And that's when she referred me to the oncologist and said, go talk to the oncologist. Let's, let's see what they say. And then we can come back and make a decision. And, um, when I spoke with my oncologist, I let him know, you know, I I'd like to have kids. I wanted to have kids. I wanted to be able to breastfeed. I wanted to be able to do that whole thing. And then that's when, you know, after looking at everything, uh, he came up with the plan of chemotherapy radiation. But since I wasn't having, uh, the, the mastectomies and after we had found out I had BRCA, the treatment was going to be like I was at a very advanced stage of cancer. I think when I was diagnosed, I was a stage one, one B or something. It was invasive ductal, but it hadn't spread. It did not spread throughout my lymphatic system or anything else. It was still, you know, pretty pretty there, but because I was young and because I wasn't doing mastectomies, um, yeah, I had to do a full round of carboplatin and taxol. And then uh, I think it was about 30 days of radiation, but fortunately I didn't have to do any hormone, hormone therapy. 
So I want to back up just a second because this is this is one of those things that I don't think it's discussed enough. You are 26. I was 43 and never wanted kids. And I will tell you, I never wanted kids until they told me I had estrogen, progesterone, positive cancer, and that they might want to take my ovaries. And, and, and then all of a sudden it's like, do I, do I not, do I really not? But at 26, so this is huge. And, and I really do want to pause for a second, because one of the things that I haven't actually talked about much on even this podcast is fertility preservation and having those conversations, because there is no action without reaction in the breast cancer world. I'm sure in any cancer world with any medical procedure, but this is the one I know. So whether it's surgical, whether it is medical oncology, whether it is radiation oncology, there's no, whether it's medications, there is no action without a reaction. And so here you are at 26 and were you single at that time? I was single, but I, I was dating. I, I did have, yeah, that was, that was a, that's an interesting uh, story too, but yeah, I was dating, but not married. Okay. So 26, all of this news decisions you have to make that are truly life altering in addition to life changing. So where you think it is that you're going to go and sort of those dreams that we all have for ourselves as we plan our future, all of a sudden having new information that is causing pause and possibly considerable change to your path. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, it was, it, it was exactly that. It was a considerable amount of change to my path. And, you know, I think when a lot of this was going on there, there is a part of you that is just moving forward. You're just moving, 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 and you're making decisions. And then there's a part of you when you get a quiet moment that you literally stop and you're just like, what the fuck is happening right now? You know, (laughs) what's going on? So when it came to the fertility, that's how I started feeling. Like when I got the diagnosis for cancer, I mean, it was a slap in the face. You're just like, wait a minute. Um, I don't feel sick. I don't look sick. I feel fine, but we can take care of it. You know? Yeah. It was an interesting way that that came about the fertility preservation. When I went to my very first uh, appointment with, with my oncologist, the guy that I was dating at the time had gone with me. My oncologist was telling me all these, all everything about the treatment, what was going to happen, how I was going to feel the side effects. And, and I think at some point in time, I kind of maybe, I don't know, just kind of blacked out a little bit because there was so much information to try to process. And my, my boyfriend at the time just sort of interjected and said, well, what about kids? Can she have kids after this? And my oncologist said, hmm. you know, he kind of stopped and, and thought about it for a minute and was like, yeah, yeah, she can have kids, but it's a good question because I'm, he's typically didn't have to think about that as part of his treatment plan. Right. Cause as you said, most of the, the women you probably I'm, I'm assuming were his patients for breast cancer were older, they already had families or grandkids. And so it kind of, it really did cause him to stop and pause and think about it. And he asked me the question, 
do you want to have children? And I said, yes, I would like to. And then that's when he also had to take another pause and say, well, this treatment, especially I think carboplatinum can push you into menopause and it can affect your fertility. Plus at the time, they didn't have a lot of data on what chemo would do to your eggs and how it would affect your reproductive system. And, and that, that was a shock, right? Sitting there at 26, having to think about this, then having to know that um, I could be, to, to save my life, I could be negatively affecting my future children. Um, what do we do? So my oncologist referred me to a a fertility specialist here in Austin. And when I went and spoke with that fertility specialist, there were all sorts of options, you know, um, embryo preservation, off-site preservation, choosing a donor if I want to do embryo preservation, that whole thing. But I think what was the kicker about all of this, what was the kicker about all of this is the insurance would not reimburse it. Even with a diagnosis, I had to figure out a way to pay for my own fertility preservation. And luckily the fertility doctor offered financial assistance. So they were able to deduct some of the costs and they did take on a bit of a task and they were able to get the insurance company to pay for the facility fees and like anesthesia and like very basic surgical stuff. But outside of that, yeah. And so it's just like how, you know, we're, we are raised in the society to feel like choosing to be able to have children and having children is part of who we are as women, you know? And then when I step into this world, they're like, no, you're, you're just choosing to do that. You know, cancer, or no cancer. We're not going to help you out. <laughs> it's just like, it was crazy. That sounds like such an opportunity for some advocacy. Obviously, this is something I had no idea about. And I, I kind of want to take a pause and just encourage anyone listening that may be feeling like, I have no options, I can't have a family or I can't have a child of my own to really encourage them to at least ask the questions and have the appointments and consultations. And, you know, it was sort of like, it's amazing to me that an aesthetic flat closure has taken as long as it has to become something that is standard and identified and covered. And for those who are listening that maybe have not had someone who's had a flat closure that was not aesthetic or hasn't seen what that looks like, it's uncomfortable. It's painful. It's unattractive in many ways. Um, You know, some, for some, I should say, because some people are totally cool with it, but um there's a reason why going to an aesthetic flat closure has been a thing. And it seems like fertility preservation needs to be another one of those areas that we really advocate because that is something else that I had, I would not have even thought that it wouldn't be covered. Yeah, not, not covered. And, and you're right. I think if, if, you know, if your listeners, young co-survivors or parents or whomever, whether anybody feels or they know they want to have children or not, it's worth having the conversation. It's worth knowing because uh, to your point, Tammy, when, when your fertility gets taken away from you and you can't have the option, 
things, things change. It's one thing to be able to have the option. It's another thing for that option to be even taken away and you not have any control now. So it's, it is worth having the conversation, whether you know, or don't know, or whether you feel like you don't really want to, it's, it's worth speaking it out. Yeah. And just knowing your options, right? I mean, that is a big part of it is fully understanding all of the options and all of the potential ramifications from the decisions and the treatments that it that you're looking at. And there are so many things that we can't control. And, you know, long story short, I still didn't want kids. And yet that was one more loss I was facing. And it was one more decision that was truly being taken away that made me be a little more introspective and asking myself, are you sure that that's not what you want? So, and that again, was it 43 versus, you know, being in my twenties or my thirties. Hey, Tammy here. Look, I know from personal experience with breast cancer how challenging it can be to get back into shape or frankly, even get motivated to try before, after, and in between procedures. My friend and fellow survivor, Susanna, she gets it too. Susanna created RecasaFit, which encompasses belly dance and core fitness into one intensive workout for improved stamina, range of motion, technique, posture, physical expression, and strength. RecasaFit can easily be modified to meet you wherever you are on your path to reclaiming your health. And for our listeners, Susanna is offering 30 days free. So what do you have to lose? Check out the monthly subscription with unlimited access as your gift of health today at www.rakasafit.com. This won't last forever, so visit www.rakasafit.com to receive your free 30 days to better health through the holidays and beyond. So let's talk a little bit about the life effects especially at that age. So you were dating, you weren't married. Um, you'd gone through the chemotherapy and the radiation and that 30 round, 30 days was how many rounds in 30 days? 30 days. It was, I think I had to go five days a week for a month. Okay. So that's not, that's, that's significant. And that whole experience is significant. And so how did you emotionally and sort of the life effects of that? Did you, I know for me, I was in and out of depression and depending on the prescription medications and where I was post, you know, whatever, like that's a side effect of many of the medications that we take. And so it's compounded. I know that I had a lot of just feeling lost. I had anger, I had denial and gosh, all of that. So talk us through that for you at the, in your twenties going through this. Yeah. Yeah. I, I am, I'm right there with you. I think, you know, you you get a diagnosis and, and in that diagnosis and those treatment plans, it's almost easy when you are diagnosed with cancer, you kind of get all these plans laid out for you. You know, you're like, you're going to get this chemo and this chemo, and you're going to come here on these days and infusion. And, you know, so you're kind of like, okay. And you're just rolling with it. But a part of that plan does not, or I should, I should rephrase that. None of those plans include any type of dealing with the emotional trauma that you go through. And I'm not saying this to be rude or to, or to downplay anybody. We, we're all strong and we all have our own inner strength. But no matter how strong you are, when you're going through a diagnosis, whether it's low level or extreme, like you said, there are life effects that come of it. 
you know, anything from like, I have hemorrhoids now for the rest of my life to losing your, your fertility, you know? So there's a lot that happens and nobody talks to you about that. And when I was 26 and going through this, I found myself in very, um, in very complex situations. And I think looking back, I think a lot of that was Maybe I, I did a little bit of that to myself because I didn't know how to handle what was going on. You know, after treatment, I was, I'm, I was with you, you know, I was angry. I was depressed. I didn't really understand what was going to be next. How was somebody going to see me with these surgeries now? Would somebody even want to be with me? Because now I have this gene and I'm going to pass it on to my kids, you know? am I defective? You know, like, like, and, and I have this gene. So no matter what, it's going to come back and who's going to sign up for that, you know? So I was going through all of these emotions on top of when I had just finished chemotherapy and radiation, I found myself, I, I was, I ended up becoming pregnant and it was happy but it was also scary and I wasn't ready. So I had to make a decision of having a child or not having a child. And I decided to not have a child. And on top of the decision on my preservation, on top of the surgeries, on top of now deciding to not have a child and going through that process, you know, my my white picket fence dreams were crumbling down around me and I started drinking a lot. I started drinking a lot. I started going out way too much, you know, and, and drinking like blackout drinking next day I was throwing up drinking. And then I would have more guilt because I'm like, I, my body just went through all of this stuff with chemo. Why am I doing this again? You know, what, what's going on? So yeah, you, you spiral a bit and, um, you, you know, you find what's close and what's convenient. And, um, for me, uh, yeah, that was, that was drinking. Cause I, I didn't know how else to deal with the depression and the anger and the disappointment that I had. One of the first things that was offered along with my diagnosis was prescriptions for antidepressants, which I declined. And I declined them because I felt like I really needed to be in tune with my instincts and with my body because I was going through so much. And I, and for me, and I never judge anybody for making the choices that they make for them. For me, I did not want to be disconnected because I felt like at some point I have to process all of this anyway, so I can process it while I'm going through it which truth be known, there were still a lot of things I didn't process for years, <laughs> or I can, you know, put this barrier up and, and hopefully, you know, delay it, I guess. But eventually it's, it's, I still had my breasts amputated and I still went through all of the things that I went through and I've still had this loss and life change and it's still going to be there. So I chose red wine instead. And that was my quote unquote drug of choice when it came to dealing with my depression and my anger, my denial, my loss. And it's, you're right. It's a tough thing because on the one hand, you're telling yourself, gosh, I'm going through all these things. And I was already, although I joke because I already ate organic exercise, did all yeah. the right things. And so I'm like, maybe I should smoke cigars and drink whiskey. And that, right. <laughs> that, 
<laughs> prevention for me. I don't know. Start swearing like a sailor. I'm not sure, but, <laughs> but you know, you do, you, you cope and that's what it is, is coping. And I think that with this, this absolute gap, if not absence of mental health in this process, how do you expect somebody to do this? And not only do you have loss in your life that is significant, but you also have this strange situation where with cancer, you are like on this train and every moment is scheduled and you have all of your doctor appointments and all of this stuff going on and you get to the end of it and they're like, all right, well, we're done. So see you in a year. (laughs) It's just this really weird. So then you have like this additional loss of now I have a loss of all my providers and I feel like a medical outcast when I try and talk to primary care. It's just, it is, unless you've been on that train, it is a a tough one to kind of, to kind of go through. But what I love about, well, (laughs) your book and your story is that you were able to still lift yourself up and dating. And so are you married now? Married now. Yeah. Been married. It'll be um, seven years pretty soon next month. So yeah, married now. That is awesome. And so if I remember correctly in the, what I call the technical green room um, before coming on the air, now your second diagnosis came after your engagement, is that right? Or soon after you were married? Yeah, yeah, actually. So my my second diagnosis of cancer, my first diagnosis of ovarian cancer came, um, I think, nine months into our marriage. We, we had not even been married a year yet. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I think, you know, the, the hard part there, the, the interesting part is when I was 26 and single, you know, my issues were who's going to love me, who's going to want me, um, who's going to want to have a family with me. Right. And just the body changes and all of that, that's happening. Um, when I was married and, and going through this, my thought was like, holy shit. Like, I don't, I don't want to miss this relationship and, and what we're, what we're building, but I also just felt really, I felt bad. I felt bad for my husband having to be so newly married and now having to be in this situation where that, where I knew it was going to happen sooner or later. And it was almost like clockwork. I remember my oncologist and and my surgeon saying, well, if you're not going to do, you know, if you have BRCA and you're not going to do a hysterectomy now, and you're not going to do mastectomies, then I think I was told that I had to have everything removed by 35. And so if I was going to have kids that I had to have all the kids I wanted to have, have everything removed by the time I was 35. Right. And then, and then like a couple of years later, they moved it out to like 36 to 38. And then it was almost like clockwork, you know, 36 and then like ovarian cancer, congratulations, you know, it's like, but, but yeah, I, I felt my frame of mind was different because I felt bad for what I was putting my husband through. But I also, I think now worried, not, not in a, not in a fearful way, like, but more worried about dying because of what that was going to do to, to my new husband. I absolutely understand that. My first husband and I did not survive my diagnosis and we were already having trouble at that point. And Griff stepped in and he fell in love 
before I did, because I wouldn't let myself, because for me, I was like, why would I do this to someone? Why would I invite someone into this kind of heartache? And so I I had thrown up walls because I had that, just that fear and that barrier. So, and it's, and that's a lot of work too, to overcome that. And he many times had to remind me that it wasn't up to me. That was his decision not my decision as far as him being willing to take that on as a risk. And for, you know, I'll be six years, Ned, in February, oh, about a week after the, after this release. Um, and still, right. Like you're, yeah, I'm healthy today. Yeah. You never <laughs> know. And, and you're exactly right. Um, I, I know that. I put up a lot of walls too. I, I think it's part of, it's part of the coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. You know, um, uh, you, you don't want to be a burden to somebody. You don't want to have somebody else go through it. You, like you said, like, why would that be fair? And and I know there there's a point in time between my diagnosis of 26 and kind of coming out of that a little bit to meeting my husband that I, I call the in-between. And it was that in between what I was dealing, you know, not only with the depression and the drinking, but also putting up a lot of walls. And then, and then, you know, I, I know that I hurt people along that journey that didn't deserve to be hurt because I wasn't ready. You know, I still, I wanted to be ready and I wanted to find a husband and I was on this timeline but if something happened and it just didn't seem right or it wasn't being my expectation, you know, uh, I was out. And that's not fair. That's not fair to people. But to your point, when uh, cancer treatment plans don't include anything, any aspect of mental health and wellness, I don't, I don't care if it's even just one appointment, a free appointment, you know, a virtual appointment, um, something that's not a pamphlet. I'm so sick of pamphlets. I hate pamphlets. <laughs> Why? That's they're the most ridiculous thing to give somebody. Yeah. Here's a piece of paper. We print it out for you and fold it in three ways. Like I hate them. This will um, fix it. <laughs> yeah, this will fix everything for you. It's like no. <laughs> like, but yeah, in, until we get until we get those types of um awareness and that type of focus into these these treatment plans, it, it's gonna be unfortunate about how many people who are diagnosed go through that pain and, and their friends and families and, you know, whoever else comes into their life at that time until they heal. I know that I've always been a strong advocate in general. That's been sort of my background, my history. And, and with cancer, I had to advocate for myself, obviously. And I will never forget telling a medical oncologist that she needed to realize that she was treating a person and not a disease. And I think that that is something that we miss. And and when I say we, I just mean as a society that we miss that, that this is a life. This is a person who had a life and had dreams and had goals and aspirations. And not only is there a bunch of change that happens, there's this expectation that, well, you're alive. And so you should just be grateful (laughs) for that. And it's not that I am not grateful to be alive, but that gratitude for being alive does not supersede my pain and reality of my loss and everything else that I'm processing. 
And I think that it sets us up for failure because it is one more sort of heavy burden from a mental health perspective that, that we're just expected that no matter what the discomfort, what the side effect, what the change has been to our life, you should just be grateful you're alive. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's uh, downplayed. I think it's makes people feel guilty, which is a, it just compounds. You're exactly right. I, I've never not been grateful for being alive and being here and being able to have the experiences that I do and meet my husband and have closer bonds with people that I didn't have bought that close of bonds with before, but it doesn't, um, you're absolutely right. It doesn't negate what you go through. It doesn't negate the feelings that you have, the loss that you have, even if it's just, it doesn't even have to be physical. You know, I, I love the, the, I love what you say amputated because things are literally getting cut off your body. Yes. And like, tossed somewhere. I don't know, but it's just the, the complete disruption to the life that your path or the path that your life was on, whether it was perfectly planned out or not, you were on a path, you, you were on a direction. And now that has been completely derailed. And, you know, the image that comes to mind is, is the train that's going along this beautiful countryside on this wonderful train track. And then all of a sudden, somebody switches the train track in the front and then the train is like, you know, that's, that's how it is. You can't, you can't negate that disruption. And I think that's the the biggest gap. It's the biggest thing that is missing from how we, how we treat um, cancer and, and helping people move through it. Yeah. I so wholeheartedly agree that gratitude does not remove the right that you have to mourn every loss and process every loss. So your book title, I love 26 and fucked. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So tell us a little bit about your book and you're also starting to pin a second one. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. Yeah. So 26 and fucked. Um, it's it, the title has like a couple of meetings. One, just plain as it is. I mean, that's how I felt. I was 26 and I literally felt like I was fucked. Like all of these decisions, all the life changes, everything that came with it. I just, I just felt like I was out there on a limb that was about to like, you know, break at any moment. But also the significance of it is, I don't know if you've noticed, but in the, in the, the spelling of effect, there is the C that is the scent sign. Yes. And that signifies things that we've talked about here. One, not only the cost to ourselves physically, emotionally, but also the cost to our, to our pockets, you know, (laughs) if you don't have insurance, it can be a huge cost. I mean, people lose homes, they go into debt. It's crazy, you know, that somebody has to fight so hard to, to save their life. Sorry. I jiggled my table. I was (laughs) quite so hard. I don't understand it. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so 26 in fact is, is about, it's my story, my, my raw story. I, I dive into all the truths that were going on. I don't hide a lot of things and it's my story on the, like you said, the life effects of, of a cancer diagnosis, how that affects you 
from everything to dating and going out and hanging out with your friends and going to a coffee shop to making these decisions about your fertility to wrestling with decisions of, oh, great, I'm pregnant, but I can't do this right now, you know, and family disappointments. So it, it's, it was my way to, I think, also do a couple of things. One, move past a lot of the trauma and the pain through writing and telling my story. I was very scared to put it out there. What are people going to think about me? Mm-hmm. Um, can I get a job after this? You know? <laughs> yes, I don't know. Um, so there is that, but also to, to help people know that they're not alone in that struggle. Like my story is not going to be the same as everybody else's story, but what is going to be the same is that that emotional trauma that we go through, those bad decisions those good decisions, those indifferent decisions. It's, it's not about that. It's not about good or bad. It's about what we did in that moment to move ourselves through what we were going through and that it's not going to be pretty and that's okay. You know, cause we, we get through it and we keep on moving. And your second book. So you've started, have you, well, I'm not even going to ask you to share a title in case you don't have it yet. And in case you haven't actually copyrighted it yet, but you've got your second one and that story is going to be a continuation, but talking about now married and the recurrence and. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I don't mind. I don't mind sharing because it's not, um, you know, it's not etched in stone. My, my thought is also to continue with the title of like 36 and fucked, but um, I've had some suggestions, you know, like, 36 and fucked again, or you know, like something like that, right? So any idea? Um, I, love, I love it. That works. Like, oh my God. Or somebody, I think even said like 36 and what the fuck, you know, something like that. But I like um, that. yeah, yeah. But yes, you're exactly right. It's um, my story about having or being diagnosed with ovarian cancer when I was 36 and it will be a different look into how messy that can be, but in a relationship, like you were talking about, um, in a marriage, what you have to deal with in those decisions and, and how they're very different. I mean, they're similar, but they're different, you know? Yeah. And all right. So your book is on Amazon. The 26 and fucked is on Amazon. The, um, atrium foundation is, does that have its own website? Is that through your website? How do people find you and how do people support your mission with the Atrium Foundation? Yes. Yeah. Atrium Foundation. Um, as you said, Tammy, my, my goal is to help people financially. And so you can find us on um, atriumfoundation.org. That's where you can find us. We are on social media. Um, we're on Instagram at, at atrium underscore foundation. I also have my own personal website for my writing and my desire to be an author one day. Um, and it's um, dorothyperetas.com. And then there are links to the atrium through there as well. And um, my goal for the book is all of my book proceeds are going to go to the foundation. That's my goal. Um, I don't plan on taking any money from myself for the writing, the classes, the whatever. I want all of the proceeds to go to the foundation to help move, you know, help move this forward, help move people forward. I love it. 
And you are so generous. You're giving away an autographed copy of the book to one of our listeners. And so all of your links, all of your social links, and the link on how to enter to win the autographed copy of 26 and Fucked from Dorothy is all going to be in the show notes. Or if you're on YouTube, just look below and it'll be in that section as well. Dorothy, thank you so much for joining me today on the Your Killer Life podcast. Your story is you know, it is inspiring and it is sadly all too common. So much of the pain, right? That common ground that we have as, as women who, and men who've gone through breast cancer and through the diagnosis. And I thank you so much for sharing what it was like, especially as a young woman and for bringing up not just mental health, but fertility preservation and really making, uh, bringing a, a new level of awareness. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tammy. It was an honor to be here with you. This is my first podcast. I was super excited about it. And yes, I just love everything that you're doing there. The awareness that you're raising the, the platform that you're allowing people to have a voice on it's, it's amazing. So thank you for having me today. Really. Thank you. I love it. Thank you. All right. And to our listeners, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you for listening into another episode of Your Killer Life, a safe space where we can intimately and boldly discuss all things breast cancer. Make sure that you never miss an episode by liking, subscribing, hitting the bell on YouTube and subscribing on your favorite podcast player. And make sure you visit the website at yourkillerlife.com. Out there, you're going to find some pretty cool blog posts, some guest blog posts, and even some recipes that are healthy and yeah, actually tasty. One of my favorite things to do is rework desserts without the sugar and without artificial sweeteners. Anyway, until next time, we'll see you again on Your Killer Life. Bye. Thank you for listening to Your Killer Life. And don't forget to subscribe. For more information about what you heard on today's show, visit us at yourkillerlife.com or visit our YouTube channel. You will also find us in all the usual places on social media. We have another great episode queued up for you next week. And until then, keep building your killer life.